we say it with some frequency that our goal, our desire, is to produce a mature congregation, one who knows the scriptures, knows the Old and New Testament, and walks in those truths. And so what that's going to require is us to dig deep in all of the scriptures. And I'll give a tiny bit more of a rationale in just a moment. But that's why our normal pattern in the morning is to preach through New Testament books consecutively. And in the evening, our normal pattern, although we deviate ever so often from that, is to preach through Old Testament books. And we will tonight continue that. I hope you'll be here with us tonight because we'll be in Joshua 6 and we will be giving an apologetic for the wrath of God upon the nations. It's a very important text, a very important sermon. hope you'll be here for that. But what you'll need to do today is you'll need to juggle. You'll need to have one finger in Psalm 34, one finger in 1 Peter chapter 3 because what we're going to do is we're going to understand the complete dependence of the New Testament preachers and writers upon the Old Testament and how they they form one seamless text. In our text today, the Apostle Peter is preaching from the only Bible he knew, the Old Testament. We don't think of Peter often as an Old Testament scholar, but we should. We usually envision him as a a rough, calloused-handed, blue-collar fisherman, maybe even semi-literate, and somehow we think that, well, Peter couldn't be a careful exegete of the Old Testament. But in our text, we will see once again that Peter extensively knows the Old Testament, knows how to preach it, knows how to apply it. And if you have doubts about Peter's ability to engage in high-level exegesis of the Old Testament, remember that Peter attended the ultimate seminary. He spent three and a half years sitting at the feet of Jesus, hearing him explain and apply the Old Testament, modeling for Peter and the other apostles how to handle the Old Testament. Peter learned his lessons well. In Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, just a few weeks after the death and resurrection of our Lord, Peter preached one of the most effective evangelistic sermons in church history. Thousands of men were converted under his preaching that day. In that sermon, Peter expounded three Old Testament texts from different literary genres of the Old Testament, prophets, poetry. He preached Joel 2, Psalm 16, and Psalm 110. Because you see, Peter had seen the the perfect model for preaching every day for three and a half years as he followed Jesus. This practice of exposition, of taking an Old Testament text, explaining it, then applying it, was demonstrated by Jesus, and Peter saw it. And the Holy Spirit brought to his remembrance those texts. But where he saw it was from the ultimate master, Jesus Christ. This was done by Jesus where he preached the only Bible he had, the Old Testament, done by Jesus, for example, when he went to his hometown in Nazareth and stood up in the synagogue, read Isaiah 61, and then gave the briefest of exposition. It was done by Jesus in the temptation of the wilderness in Matthew 4, when Jesus was confronted with the evil one, and he repelled him by preaching three Old Testament texts, Deuteronomy 6, Deuteronomy 8, Deuteronomy 10. 
When Jesus was called to, to give his opinion on divorce in Matthew 19, when he was confronted by the Pharisees, he immediately expounded and applied Genesis 1. And Peter's watching carefully. Oh, every time Jesus stands to speak, he takes an Old Testament text and he explains it and applies it. And then even after his death and resurrection, Jesus is still an Old Testament preacher. In Luke chapter 24, when Jesus is on the road to Emmaus, immediately following his resurrection, Jesus speaks to two disciples and he preaches dozens, maybe even hundreds of Old Testament texts where we're told that he preaches the entire Old Testament. This was the model of preaching that Peter saw for three and a half years, Old Testament exposition. So when Peter, as an apostle, takes pen, puts it to paper to write, he's still proclaiming. What is it that he's going to preach? What we're going to see today in our text is Peter engages in an exposition of Psalm 34 to largely Gentiles. Now, it's one thing for Jesus to take the Old Testament and to, to preach it to Jews. It's, a, again, one thing for Peter to take the Old Testament and preach it to Jewish hearers, but Peter is writing to largely Gentile hearers. He's in the new covenant. He sits in the, the spot of redemptive history in the same place where you and I sit. And he preaches the Old Testament to them. And so we're going to need the grace of the Holy Spirit. We're going to need his teaching help to rivet our gaze, to understand deeply what it is that Peter's doing and how this applies to you in the year 2023, and how you live the Christian life. Let's seek the Lord's help now. Sovereign Lord, your word is a, a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. We ask that you would pour out your Holy Spirit upon us now. Give us grace to focus and concentrate and to shoo away any distractions that the evil one will stir up so that we might receive your truth in faith and humility then give us strength to follow the path that you set before us in your word. We pray in the name of Jesus, our only Lord. Amen. I hope you'll have your Bible not only open to Psalm 34, but look back one page to 1 Peter 1. And what I want you to do is I want you to just ever so briefly go on a quick tour with me before we dig in in our text. And I want you to be impressed. Maybe you won't be. I was. I want you to be impressed with how deeply Peter is dependent upon the Old Testament for his epistle in 1 Peter. And what I want to do is take you and show you that Peter has 17 separate Old Testament citations in this brief book. And what he does is Peter's not a one-trick pony. He cites the historical books of the Old Testament. He cites the law. He cites the poets. He cites the prophets, and for those of you who don't get what's going on, Peter is showing you his breadth and depth of understanding of the Old Testament. What else would Peter quote? What else would he use as an authority? The New Testament canon has not been formed yet. He would use the Old Testament. But he's doing this to New Covenant believers. So go on a survey with me very quick. Look at 1 Peter, beginning in verse 116, where we read... Peter says, it is written, be holy, for I am holy. Peter there is quoting Leviticus, Leviticus 11, Leviticus 19, Leviticus 20. Then secondly, look at 1 Peter 1.17. 1 
He says, if you call on the Father who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves through the time of your stay here in fear. That's a quote of Deuteronomy 1.17 and Deuteronomy 16. And then again, look at 1 Peter 1, verse 24, 25. All flesh is as grass. The glory of man is the flower of the grass. The grass withers, its flower falls away. The word of the Lord endures forever. That's a quote from the prophet Isaiah. But Peter's just warming up. My point, please stay with me here. My point is, is that Peter is completely dependent on the Old Testament for his sermons and his writings. All that he's doing is really just expounding Old Testament text. In 1 Peter 2, verse 3, Peter says, If indeed you've tasted that the Lord is gracious. This is a quote of Psalm 34, verse 8 and 9. The psalm we'll be looking at in some depth in a moment. Then again, again in 1 Peter 2, verse 4, Peter says, You have come to him as a living stone, rejected indeed by men, chosen by God and precious. It's a quote of Psalm 118. And so what you're going to see, and I want to, I want to continue and finish this task, but you're scratching your head at some point saying, well, all Peter does is cite Old Testament text. That's almost correct to make his points because he views the Old Testament as binding and authoritative on the new covenant believer. He's writing to new covenant believers. And then again, look at 1 Peter 2, 6 and 7. Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. A quote from Isaiah 28 and Psalm 118. And then again, 1 Peter 2, 10. You once were not a people, but are the people of God who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. That's a quote from the prophet Hosea. And what you find is, is no text is too obscure, too odd for Peter to cite. Again, he cites historical books, law, poetry, prophets. You're in the hands of a master Old Testament scholar. Peter says in 1 Peter 2, verse 22, he committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. He's quoting Isaiah 53 there. Or again in 1 Peter 2.24, he bore our sins in his own body on the tree. By his stripes you were healed, quoting Isaiah 53. Or look at the text we saw a couple weeks ago, 1 Peter 3.6. Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. He's quoting Genesis 18. Or our text today in 1 Peter 3, verses 10 through 12, it's a quote of Psalm 34. And then we'll see several more in 1 Peter 3, 4, and 5. Now let me step back for just a second and help you think about how the New Testament uses the Old. Now remember where it's Peter, Paul, John, Jesus. They had no New Testament. Their Bible was the Old Testament. And so when they cite the Old Testament in their writing, in their sermons, let me give you a few principles. The first is, whether it's Jesus or Paul or Peter or John, they all with one voice affirm that the Old Testament is God's inerrant word. The Lord Jesus treated the Old Testament as God's word. We see that over and over again. The apostles followed Jesus, teaching the Old Testament with the same conviction. When Paul speaks about the Old Testament, he says this, 2 Timothy 3, all scripture is God-breathed. 
And so what we see is the apostles and Jesus, whenever they cite the Old Testament, they present a unified message showing that the entire storyline of the Old Testament segueing into the New is to point to Jesus. Another principle we see about the New Testament's use of the Old Testament. God doesn't inspire a later revelation, the New Testament, that contradicts prior revelation, meaning the Old Testament. The ethics and principles, for example, of the Old Testament are shown to be binding in the New. For example, think of a, one odd and interesting example. 1 Timothy 5. Paul instructs the church to compensate their pastors who, lay, who labor in preaching and teaching. And he bases that on this text, Deuteronomy 25.4, don't muzzle the ox when it treads out the grain. So anytime that Pastor Dodds is starting to get a little uppity, or Pastor King or Pastor Anderson, or of course I would never do such a thing, just remind us on a regular base that when Paul is talking about paying your pastor, he says, you know, there's an Old Testament principle, don't muzzle the ox. And so you can very gently put your arm around Pastor Dodds and say, we're going to make sure you get paid this Friday, my friendly ox. <laughs> the one benefiting from the labor of the ox should not take economic advantage of the owner of the ox. And then there's another principle. Again, where will Paul go if he wants to settle an ethical issue? He goes to the Old Testament, and so he says in 2 Corinthians 13, every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. In a biblical economy, there's no he said, she said. You've got to have at least two witnesses for anything. And Paul points out that he's quoting Deuteronomy 19. Old Testament quotes are often used by New Testament authors, where it be John, Peter, Paul, or the Lord Jesus, to show direct fulfillment. Over and over again, we see New Testament writers saying, oh, look at this prophecy. You have the prophecy in Micah 5, 2, that the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. And then we find in Matthew chapter 2, that same promise is cited. Look, Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Or Zechariah prophesies that the king will ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. Then we're told in John 12, Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey on Palm Sunday. Well, all of that is set up. Look at our two texts. Look at 1 Peter 3 and Psalm 34. Again, you're going to have to do some juggling, but that's fine. You're mature believers and maturing, and you have a zeal for the word, and so you don't mind turning a page or two. And what we're going to see is Peter roots his preaching in a distinct text. Now, he's already referred to Psalm 34 in 1 Peter 2, verse 3 and 4. And now, look what Peter does in 1 Peter 3, 10 and 12, he's just given ethical admonitions, six ethical admonitions to believers. And he says, look at verse 10 of 1 Peter 3, 4, and your Bible probably has the next two verses set off in italics. That means it's a quote of the Old Testament. And so Peter quotes Psalm 34, 12 through 16. That's his text. That's his sermon text. Now, he does something fascinating to me. He gives you the sermon in the preceding verses, and afterwards he says, oh, by the way, I'm expounding Psalm 34. Do you see it there in our text? He gives the sermon first, 
then the sermon text in 1 Peter 3, 10 and 12. Now, again, I'm, I'm fascinated by this. Psalm 34 had several specific uses in the early church. The fact that Peter uses it frequently in his own writings is not surprising because Psalm 34 turns out was used for the discipling of new Christians. Look, for example, at your copy of Psalm 34 and just see why. Psalm 34, verse 11, David writes in Psalm 34, 11, which is Peter's sermon text. Psalm 34, 11, come you children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. And so the early church leaped on that and they said, Psalm 34 is a, is a text for the discipling of new Christians. It's a, it's a personal ethics catechism, which is what Peter's doing here in our text. It's also used by the early church, Psalm 34 was, to teach believers how to endure trials and difficulties. Because in Psalm 34, 19, the psalmist writes, many are the afflictions of the righteous. And so the early church seized on that and said, this is a perfect text to show believers who are going through trials how to live. Oh, but that's not all. Turns out Psalm 34 was sung regularly in worship as a praise psalm. Look back at Psalm 34, where the psalmist begins. And of course, every Old Testament believer and most New Testament believers knew the psalms, knew the tune to the psalms, where the psalmist writes, I'll bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul shall make its boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear of it and be glad. Magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. This was regularly used in New Covenant worship. And then again in Psalm 34, if you look at verse 19 and 20, which shows that not one bone of the Messiah would be broken in his crucifixion, this psalm was used to show how Jesus fulfilled Old Testament prophecy. And it was used, now we're getting deep. Look at Psalm 34, verses 4 through 6. It was used in counseling as a simple three-step sequence for what scholars will call the lament event. In Psalm 34, verse 4 and 6, look at the cycle. I sought the Lord. The Lord heard. The Lord delivered. And so early believers were taught, here's how to use Psalm 34. When you're going through a lament and you come out on the other side, here's how you praise God. Use the words of Psalm 34, 4 through 6. I sought the Lord. The Lord heard. The Lord delivered. How often do we, as we are going through a difficult time, we just say, can't wait till I get through this dark passage. And as soon as we're through, we don't want to think about it. We don't want to say, let me go back and study that. I sought the Lord. The Lord heard. The Lord delivered. And then again in Psalm 34, verses 15 and 17, this taught the early church the efficacy of prayer, that God actually listens to the believer's lament and petition. But what I want you to see in verses 8 and 9 of our text, of 1 Peter 3, all of that, again, it's just set up after set up for you. What I want you to see is Peter gives six admonitions to new covenant believers. Six of them. Look at them jammed together in 1 Peter 3, 8 and 9. Peter states, finally, and that's the Greek word telos when he says in verse 8, finally, finally, 
Peter's not ending the epistle. By the way, Sandy and I had the occasion to hear the worst finally ever in the history of preaching. When we were in Las Vegas, we were off for a Sunday, and so we visited a, another church, and the pastor was a friend, and he preached a really good 20-minute sermon. It was wonderful. I was just delighted. And he said, finally, and in preaching parlance, he was about to set the plane down, we thought. He said, finally, and then the plane took off again, and he preached the entire sermon again, word for word. And he said then, the third time, he said, I don't think my wife's been awake for the first two citations of this, so I'm going to preach the sermon again. He preached it a third time. And when he said, finally, I thought, well, you've promised that twice already. And he finally set the plane down. He took 60 minutes to preach a 20-minute sermon three times. That, we call that a Pastor Doddsism at, at Woodruff But Peter, look at verse 3, or verse 8, 1 Peter 3, 8. Peter is not ending the epistle, and he's not just doing what my friend did. He's simply concluding a section of his letter where he's been giving ethical imperatives to slaves, wives, citizens. But now Peter wants to speak to, look who's addressed. Look at verse 8, the beginning. All of you. So right now I'm telling you, if you're thinking, Carl's going to say something, and I'm just already planning on saying this doesn't apply to me. Peter has already outflanked you. He says no to all of you. He's giving ethical imperatives to all believers who read his letters. These are these six imperatives are relationship imperatives, social instructions that are universally applicable. That's why Peter says to all of you. And so our text is binding on us 20 centuries later. Look at the first relational admonition. Verse 8, be of one mind. This is an imperative to us at Woodford Presbyterian Church in September of 2023 to be of one mind. Concerning the unity of the church, to be of one mind, we have New Testament indicatives, which says whether you like it or not, you already have seven elements of unity, the sevenfold unity of Ephesians 4, one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father. But concerning unity, we have more than indicatives, we have imperatives. Peter's fellow apostle Paul writes in Philippians 1, stand fast in one spirit with one mind together for the faith of the gospel. By the way, Paul gives this admonition to a congregation where the centerpiece of their life is two women, Yodi and Syntyche, who are squabbling. And then concerning unity, Jesus tells us that we must pray for the unity of the church, the one-mindedness of the church. It's fascinating. You do remember, don't you? You do realize that when Jesus goes to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray, and he prays the high priestly prayer, the number one subject on his mind and heart as he's now minutes away from his arrest is the unity of the church, the one-mindedness of the church. Jesus prays in John 17, 11, Father, I want them to be one as we are one. He does it again in John 17, 21, and again in verse 22 and 23. And so what we learn as believers, this unity that we have, this one-mindedness, that we're commanded to seek and pray for. We must guard the unity of the church. When Peter writes, he writes very simply, all of you be of one mind, but what this includes is a commitment to guard the unity of the church. 
I've often told you that for the first 10 years of my pastoral tenure here, I failed to spot, this is the New Testament term for them, wolves, coming in our midst, and we paid a heavy price. But the Apostle Paul gives, and this was where I should have been fired for pastoral malpractice, the Apostle Paul gives all kinds of instruction in First and Second Timothy and Titus on how to spot a wolf. And the first way you know a wolf is they are always, always divisive. They're always trying to pull people off to the side, form small groups. Slowly, we learned how to spot wolves, and now for the last 13 years, we say on a regular basis to wolves who come in, you know what, we're not the church for you. You should move along. You should probably go to the OPC church. That's where you should go. We've seen older men and younger men, single men and single women, even youth who are wolves, never be surprised at those who would come in amongst us to divide. Who, when they look at that first admonition, all of you be of one mind, they'll say, oh, I've got something for Woodruff Road. I want to divide the church over gender roles. I want to divide the church over parenting philosophy. I want to divide the church over worship style, programs, food and drink, school choice, political affiliations. My dance card is full. I've got all kinds of ways I want to divide this church. And you think, well, I'm glad Carl finally woke up and got it. I'm glad the elders are on the job. No, look who this is addressed to. Look at verse 8. All of you. Peter is saying the first relational admonition, to be of one mind, is a full-time congregational task. Whenever you see anyone, 20-year-old or 80-year-old, seeking to divide the flock, confront that immediately and head on. The second relational admonition. And again, remember, Peter is preaching Psalm 34. He'll, he'll identify his text afterwards, but he's preaching the sermon first. His second relational admonition, look, all of you be of one mind. Second, have compassion for one another. The word compassion literally means suffering together, entering into one another's concerns, weeping with those who weep. For example, when you get the weekly prayer guide, I hope you do on Wednesday nights. I hope you come in and the first thing you do is you come into the choir room and you pick up that prayer guide that we will use in our time of prayer. And you'll notice dozens of fellow Woodruff Roaders who are suffering. They don't have work. They're sick. They're dying. They've received a horrible diagnosis. They have broken relationships. Just read slowly through these brothers and sisters one week, and you'll see why the Bible describes this world as a veil of tears. So what is it to elicit from us? Are we to just be stoic and have a stiff upper lip? No, this tells us what to do. Look carefully at the text. Have compassion for one another. Enter into one another's suffering. Think of how many models we have of this in the New Testament. Luke 15 describes the compassion of the waiting father who's deeply moved by the sin and sufferings of his prodigal son. Or Luke chapter 10 describes the good Samaritan's compassion for the badly beaten man. He's so moved by his compassion that he enters into the suffering of this man. God wants to conform you in this way to the image of Christ, the man of perfect compassion. Think of what we read about in Luke chapter 7 when he sees this poor suffering woman. We read these words. The Lord saw her and he had compassion on her. 
The most literal translation of the Greek text is the Lord saw her and his, his heart went out to her. And it could refer to a physical shudder. When Jesus saw this poor woman in Luke 7's grief, he didn't wait for her to ask for help. His assistance didn't even seem to be expected at all. Then in scripture, we are told that we must have compassion on widows and orphans. God gives laws to protect them and promises judgment on Israel if they ignore or afflict widows and orphans. So you're the least bit surprised that when God comes in the flesh, he has an overriding concern for widows and orphans. To be compassionate requires something radical. And others focus instead of self-focus. That was our Lord Jesus Christ. He was not self-absorbed, but others focused. He didn't come to be served, but to serve. Jesus so identified with our sufferings, most of them are our own making. He would come all the way down, take our flesh, and suffer with us. And his heart is just as compassionate today as it was in the days of his flesh. His sympathy with sufferers is still strong. This should comfort the sufferer deeply. So the second admonition, we are to understand not only are we to be of one mind, but we're to be compassionate with one another. Thirdly, look at verse 8 again. Third admonition. Again, these are, these are new covenant admonitions. You can't dispensationally say this somehow applies only to Old Testament believers. No, this is meant for you and I, and you can't escape it. Yes, it's Peter's preaching an Old Testament text, but he's saying to New Testament Gentile believers, I'm talking to you. This should control your body life. Look at verse 8. He commands us, gives the imperative to love as brothers. And Peter's not the only one. Paul says this in Romans 12.10, Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love. To the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 13, Let brotherly love continue. The Greek word, of course, you know for brotherly love is the word Philadelphia. It's affection for fellow believers because we've been adopted into the same family. We have the same father. This is the new commandment that Jesus gave. Love one another. Now, I have to remind us of this on a regular basis. The church is not made up of natural friends, but of natural enemies. We come from different academic backgrounds. If you went through this congregation carefully, you'd find high school dropouts and PhDs. You'd find different incomes. We have millionaires and people on welfare. You'd find different ethnicities. In this congregation, we've had South Americans, Central Americans, North Americans, Eastern Europeans, Western Europeans, Asians, Indians, thank you, J-Paul, Arabs, Jews, Africans, and like myself, mongrelized Americans. We have different vocations. Physicians, pharmacists, carpenters, engineers, factory line workers, social workers, nurses, and all. But we come together not because we have natural affinities, but because we have a supernatural affinity. We've all been redeemed by Christ. We've all been adopted by the same Father, and we owe Him our complete allegiance. If Christian brotherly love were nothing more than the shared affection of mutually compatible people, it would be indistinguishable from pagan love for pagans. But the reason why Christian love stands out is it's a display for Jesus' sake of mutual love among social incompatibles. Why do we love the brethren? Not because they're our, our ethnicity or have our academic attainment or speak our language or have our political affiliation or part of our economic class. 
We love the brethren because the triune God has set his affection on them. Because they too have the indwelling spirit of God. Because they too have believed the gospel. Because they too are living for the glory of God and walking by faith. We love them because we see them being conformed to the likeness and image of Christ. Brotherly love that Peter speaks about here is sacrificial. We know that from 1 John 3.16. By this we know love because he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Brotherly love is always sacrificial. Brotherly love is never talk or good wishes or sentiment or emotion. It's action. That's why John can write, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and truth. Love doesn't say be warmed and be filled. Love cares and feeds and provides and gives. Fourth relational admonition is to be tender-hearted not hard-hearted. The fifth is, notice in our text, in verse 8, to be courteous. This is fascinating, to be well-mannered. It's interesting that Peter's fellow apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13, 5, that love is not rude or discourteous. You know the person who's not courteous. They embarrass others with crude remarks. They make others the butt of their jokes. They're inconsiderate and care nothing for the feelings of others. The Corinthian church was the primary example of lack of courtesy. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11 that this church was so discourteous. When they came to the Lord's Supper, they rudely ate and drank, didn't wait for each other, and in the process, they even got drunk. During worship services, each one tried to outdo one another. They all talked at the same time. In his book, Respectable Sins, which you need to own and read, Jerry Bridges has a chapter on what he calls inconsiderateness. And the person who never thinks of the impact of his words or actions on others. They're always late. They always keep others waiting. They make messes. They leave them for others to clean up. But love seeks to give no offense. Love is considerate. You are called, look at our text in verse 8, You are called to a life of courtesy. Conversion does not make a man ignore all social conventions. But the grace of God in conversion makes a man courteous, well-mannered. But the relational admonition that Peter wants to stress, look at verse 9, is where his key attachment to his sermon text of Psalm 34 comes from. He wants to switch gears now. Peter turns from your relationships with believers, that's what those first admonitions have been about, to your relationships with unbelievers. Look at what Peter says in verse 9. Not returning evil for evil, he's expecting unbelievers to treat you in an evil fashion, or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, noting that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. You see, Peter expects, he's, watch what he just did. Here were five admonitions. You're saying, yeah, yeah, yeah. Now he tells you the hardest of the admonition, the sixth. It's how to live with unbelievers. Peter expects wicked men to mistreat the believer. In fact, he even names what that that poor treatment will be. Look at the text in verse 9. Reviling. He's telling you, Don't be surprised when wicked men, when lost men, revile you. 
when they speak of you in a fashion that's evil. There, that should never be a surprise to anyone in this room. Let me please disabuse you who are sort of Pollyanna types or you're uh, spiritually naive. Let me disabuse you of that and tell you, if you have not been yet reviled by the world, one of two things is the true. Either, well, you will tomorrow morning or you're an unbeliever. And the unbelieving world sees nothing in you to revile. But look at what the rest of the New Testament says. We have the universal principle stated for us by Paul in 2 Timothy 3, who says, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. We're told again by Paul in Philippians 1, it's been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but to suffer for his sake. Peter will tell us in the next chapter, and so you'll hear this sermon again in 1 Peter 4. Peter says in 1 Peter 4.12, Beloved, don't think it's strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. John writes in 1 John chapter 3, Don't marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. In the course of strengthening new converts on their mission trip, in encouraging them to remain true to the faith, Paul and Barnabas make no attempt to hide the problems they would face in a hostile world. And they say to fellow believers in Acts 14, you must through many hardships enter the kingdom of God. Paul says again in 1 Thessalonians 3, no one should be shaken by these afflictions. You yourselves know that we were appointed to this. Now this was pictured and exemplified in the Old Testament. This is old news. For the believers there were persecuted and reviled. You remember that David, how he was chased around, a price was on his head for a decade. Saul spoke wickedly of him and tried to kill him. David never retaliated against King Saul. Now this is our point here. Look at what Peter does. He's, he's relying on David's psalm, Psalm 34. And so when he thinks of how did our Old Testament fathers deal with reviling, look what Peter says in our text in 1 Peter 3, 9. He says, not returning evil for evil. That's exactly what David did with Saul. He didn't return evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing. Peter's not surprised that his first century fellow believers are being reviled. He's not even troubled by it. He's concerned with one thing, that Christians not respond in kind. Now, I will tell you that Christians do, or at least confessing Christians. You've heard me say it a lot. I'll say it more as we get closer to the silly season, also known as elections and politics. But one of the things that's so deeply troubling to me is I'll turn on the radio as I'm sitting still on Woodruff Road like you are. And I will, will hear people call in. They'll say, I'm a Christian. I just want to let these unbelieving politicians have it. And they will revile them. And I'm thinking, brother, if I had your phone number, I'd call you and tell you to repent. Because look at 1 Peter 3.9. Look at what the believer is commanded, given an imperative to do. Is to, this is as simple and flat and blunt as it can be. To not respond in kind. Do we know that the world is going to revile us? Absolutely. But Peter says, you cannot respond in kind. And in saying this, not only is Peter only saying what David said in Psalm 34, 
He's only echoing his fellow apostle Paul who writes in 1 Corinthians 4.12, being reviled, we bless. And he's only repeating what he heard Jesus say in Luke chapter 6 when Jesus, Peter's sitting there taking notes. I'm saying that metaphorically. Peter heard Jesus teach, blessed are you when men hate you, when they exclude you and revile you and cast out your name as evil for the son of man's sake. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy for behold, your reward is great in heaven. In like manner, their fathers did to the prophets. Jesus doesn't pronounce you as blessed if you're being persecuted for being difficult. Jesus doesn't pronounce you as being blessed if you're excluded because you're weird. Jesus doesn't pronounce you blessed if you're being reviled because you lack wisdom and you're really foolish. Jesus doesn't pronounce you blessed if you're excluded for just being offensive. But he does pronounce you as blessed if you don't respond in like manner. David shows it. Jesus teaches it. Paul teaches it. And now Peter adds his voice to the chorus. We are not to retaliate like the unbeliever or sulk like a pouting child or lick our wounds in self-pity like a dog or put on a stiff upper lip like the Stoics. What then? We're to rejoice, leaping for joy. We see the disciples obeying these words when they rejoice in Acts 5 for the privilege of being reviled and beaten for Christ's sake. Why does Christ command believers to not revile? Why does Peter echo this? Because God through persecution is showing your identification and union with Christ. You can rejoice because it's clear to the world you're in union with Christ. You can rejoice because God is using that persecution, that reviling, to sanctify and mature the believer. And because, as Peter says here, you can rejoice when the world reviles you because you have a great inheritance waiting for you. Now notice what Peter calls these six actions. Look at verse 9. Peter calls these six actions being a blessing and promises that such believers will inherit a blessing. Those who live this way, the five traits that you demonstrate towards believers, and the one trait towards unbeliever, not reviling the reviler, find the blessing of God pouring down upon them. How do we apply this? I started to say, finally, but how do we apply this? First of all, are you still looking for the, the applause of the world? Stop. If you're truly a believer, the world will never praise you. You'll never be popular. Jesus was reviled, mocked, scorned, abandoned, and cursed. And if you're his, you will be also. The world did not applaud Jesus. They murdered him. Tomorrow, when you go to the office, as you walk in, you see two or three people. And you think they're talking about me? Hey guys, what are we talking about? Oh, nothing. Don't be surprised. Tomorrow when you walk into your school and you open your locker and people openly revile you or in your neighborhood, my friend, you've been given the playbook what to do. Don't respond in kind. Expect it if you are united to Christ. And then a second application. Let me remind you. For those of you who think, oh, 
I, I, I'm just mortified. I don't know if I can last through this reviling and this scorning of the world. My friends, any suffering that you and I endure for Christ's sake is small and quick. Paul writes to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians 4 and says, Our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us an exceeding and eternal weight of glory. You have to put up with the hatred and the reviling of the world about, oh, that much longer. Peter says it's light. It's a light affliction. A third application. The Christian must not return evil for evil because that's what Christ did for us. He did not repay our evil, all of our sins against him, with anything other than the highest good. He responded to our reviling of him by substitutionary atonement for us. We sinned against him. We reviled him and denied him. Yet he laid down his life for us. We took his gifts and abused them. And he poured out his best gifts. The reason why you must not return evil for evil is that's a picture of what Christ did for us. He didn't return evil for evil. Another application. If an apostle of the new covenant, Peter, sees the legitimacy of preaching Old Testament texts. Now, listen to this formula. Because I can't tell you how many people have walked through the door, I've spoken to them, and they've said, you give 50% of your time in this pulpit to preaching the Old Testament. Absolutely we do. And we'll continue to do so. Why? Because of this. If an apostle of the new covenant, Peter, sees the legitimacy of preaching Old Testament text, and that's what he does. He cites his text here in verse 10 to 12. Then we, as ministers of the new covenant, must preach Old Testament text, using them to exhort believers to holiness. That's what Peter does right here. And that's why we preach Old Testament text in our evening services. I hope you'll join us tonight. But I want you to notice something profound. And it's taken me years to, to grasp this. A few years ago, we had a politician who was running for president, and he was asking in a press conference, what's your stance on homosexual marriage? I'm opposed to it. A couple of years went by, and he overturned the prohibition against homosexual marriage. And now you'd think 10 years after the fact that we've always had this. No, this is new. And what you see is this is just one of the most egregious examples that our world, our culture, our nation is moving fast. There is no such thing as fixed ethical points in our culture. But my friends, once you step inside the church of Jesus Christ, what you find is there is nothing but fixed ethics. That the same admonition that David could give 3,000 years ago in Psalm 34 of how to respond to the reviling of the world, how to treat one another, how to be compassionate and courteous. Peter will pick up a 1,000 years after the fact and give the same admonition to Gentiles and Jews alike. And we can pick up 3,000 years after David and say, no change. Our ethics are fixed point ethics. 
And so when you hear Peter's sermon, the sermon that we just preached could have been easily preached by Peter in the first century and was easily sung and preached in the synagogue a thousand years before Peter. What you hear in the preaching of the world of the word is something radically different than the world has, which is shifting sand. Our ethics for behavior towards one another and towards the world are fixed. Let's pray together.